Welcome to the Meant for Good podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Holbrook, and I believe that each of us have been given gifts, dreams, skills, and ideas that we're meant to share with each other. My goal is to share stories that challenge and inspire you and I to connect with people around us because we are meant for good. I am so curious how you navigated being gifted in so many areas. You had a career in the NFL. You had a degree. Long time ago. For your listeners, it was a long <laughs> time ago, long before you were even thought about being here on in the earth on the earth. So yeah. That's that's uh-huh. true. Probably a good ten years before that. But Oh um, at least. At least. <laughs> Well, I'm just so curious because, you know, people talk about being a jack of all trades, master of none or whatever. Often people have lots of little things that they're juggling, but you had like two huge major things going on and you had your degree in music and you had this um, this desire to make a living making music and yet you have this career in the NFL. Can you talk a little bit about that time and, and what it was like and um, how did you navigate being gifted in both areas? Well, first of all, Hannah, I never thought, uh, felt that I was gifted. I never, if if nature, God conspired to gift me with anything, it was uh, love, with with a love for a couple of things, a deep love. When I was a kid, I grew up in, in Pennsylvania in a railroading town and, and football was the Football was the what you did, you know. If you if you were had an athletic ability, that's just what we. I grew up somewhat out in the country, and we had a group of kids out there. We ran those hills and roads like a pack of wild dogs, and we played sports twelve months a year. It's just was what life was. For whatever reason, when I was six years old, my grandmother next door down the hill had an old upright piano. In the sun porch, and my earliest memory of life is banging on those keys. Now, not have no. I, I was I, my earliest memory of life is about three, I guess three and a half. And so then, when I was six, I asked for lessons. So they, to my dad, who was a and mom were blue collar workers. They got my uncles, and we dragged the, They dragged the piano up the hill, and I started taking lessons. I won't take you through the whole experience. I was not gifted. I was somewhat gifted as an athlete, as a kid in high school. And then I got a scholarship to play uh, football at Penn State under Joe Paterno. If you go back that far, uh, your folks are, know that that name. Your listeners know that name. Um, it, it was never, it, you know, Hannah, it was never a matter of juggling things that I was gifted at because I wasn't. I think... I think the thing, if I look back on my life, whether it was sports or music, I don't remember ever thinking in terms of success. I don't remember ever thinking, I've got to do this to, quote, make it. I think what I was trying to do, whether it was in sports or in music, what I was working at doing was just simply becoming better, right? I think, um, I think the road, what I learned very late in life, that the journey toward some kind of peace or happiness in as much as your life will allow you to have that, okay, is not through achievement necessarily or success, but it's through competence, becoming competent at something. 
Maybe it'll be the piano. Maybe it'll be a high jumping or long jump or uh, track and field, or maybe it'll be gardening. Maybe it'll be making the best lasagna anyone's ever made, ever, ever tasted. The idea is, I, I suggest to people, what I've strived and I continue to try even now is to become competent, become better at what it is I'm trying to do. One of my favorite, one of my favorite stories, if we have a moment, I'll tell you, it's, it's the great uh, long, uh, I think he's gone, he'd been gone for, Pablo uh, Casals the, was at one point the world's greatest cellist. And um, he lived a long life. And when he was in his early 90s, 91 or 92, he was being, um, I hope I get this story right, he was being interviewed by a young woman. And he informed her at 92 that he practiced every day. And she said, uh, Maestro, at, you were gone through life as one of the great cellists who ever picked up the instrument. And you, um, you practice every day at 92. Why? And he said, because I think I'm making progress. And I thought, what? I remember that story every day I come out to this room because if you can find something, regardless of what it is, that you are compelled to try to work at to become simply better at it, that will sustain, I contend that will sustain you through a lot of difficult times. Maybe it won't be what you do to make a living. Maybe that'll be some other thing. You know, the great poet Wallace Stevens was uh, worked for the Hartford Insurance Company. That's how he made his, um, um, William Carlos Williams, another tr great American poet of the last half of the 20th century, was a baby doctor. Okay, that's how he, Charles Ives, the great composer, American composer, um, thorny old devil, you know, who used to say things like, stand up and take your dissonance like a man, <laughs> right? He invented the concept of life insurance. That's how, he, that's how he became independently wealthy, having done that. Maybe what you do creatively will be how you make a living. Maybe it won't. Or maybe it, this thing that you love, you're compelled to try to try to simply become better at, maybe it'll be how you pay your bills. Maybe not. But even if it's not, it is something that I believe and I will contend will sustain you throughout a long life. So I don't think in terms of, and I certainly don't look back on my life and say, wow, it's been a success. I just don't think in those terms. I'm still... Well, for me, it's writing, and I'm still trying to become better. I'm still trying to get closer to what Arthur Miller called the hidden narrative. Uh, so that's what I uh, that's what I do. Perhaps uh, when we do these things, it'll intersect with the public's attention. But most of the creative life is sent out of the is spent out of the public's view. But if you just are compelled to just get better. It can sustain you for a long time, I think. You said something early on about you were just doing things that you loved. If you love what you're doing, you're kind of honoring that thing, like you're honoring 
the music, like you're honoring the gifts that you've been given, even honoring God for giving you the gift by pursuing it and um, just doing something for the love of it. I really like that. And that also takes it out of performance. Yeah, very much so. Every morning I come out and the first thing I do come to my little uh, workroom, you've been in here, I'll turn on the recording thing, trying to do it with an empty mind without thought. And I'll improvise. I'll just sit and put my hands in the keys and I'll, uh, they go from anywhere from sometimes it'll be as short as three minutes and, and on occasion six or seven minutes. And I'll, it's a lot of, you know, a lot of it is nonsense, you know, and a lot of it is just um, bland. If my mind is engaged, starts kicking in, then it, it will take the, it, it tends to bland it out a little bit. But I tend to collect those and I refer to them as morning benedictions. Um, and what they're designed to do is to remind me to be grateful for a life in music. You know, gratitude is, is pushed out of the way in favor of expectation. And you've always got to be mindful when, expe- when gratitude morphs into expectation. You're in a little bit of trouble. You want to really get back to that. What is it that you can do? A meditation, a, bened- a little something you can do that helps you reclaim gratitude. It's very difficult to feel gratitude now with everybody on edge and and there's so much uh, tension in the world now but there's still we can't let it obscure the fact that um, just being here uh, just this Carl Jung referred to life as a moment between two vast mysteries and I am enormously grateful for the mysteries because that's where I find the experience of the ephemeral the transcendent and I love that. Yeah, so good. I was like, man, you better preach about that. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right because the things that we focus on, we give power to them. And even our thoughts can dictate our reality. And I'm um, I'm careful to take my thoughts captive. I'm learning to do more of that, especially if it's a negative thought about myself or another person like to analyze it and be like, where's that coming from? Is that God? Is that how God sees that person? Is that how he sees me? And I think gratitude, being thankful for the things God's doing in that season, it really helps you see what he's doing because it's easy to focus on the negative things. Anyone can do that. But can you actually see what God's doing? Because I think he has solutions for everything that we're going through. He has solutions and we, we have to go to him to get them. Um, and sometimes we'll get just like little ideas and we know what to do in a situation. But often I find myself, if I'm struggling with something or I'm not sure what to do next, I try to stop and think like, oh, God has solutions. Like the Bible literally says he's my wonderful counselor and that, you know, he wants to help me with things that he's thought ahead about my needs. And sometimes I'm just not willing to receive his solutions because I'm so focused on the negative things that are going on. You're, and I would encourage you uh, to continue. It's a daily pursuit, you know. There's probably not an arrival of constant. This is a daily, uh, and but you're so young, 
Hannah, that I would encourage you to, and anyone young, young, uh, in early, early on in their lives to think about pursuing this as a daily pursuit and don't be discouraged when you fall back. You know, I, as a, an old man, I, um, it's interesting. You, I struggle with this because, um, to use your phrase, which is so perfectly said, I give power very much often, uh, too often at this stage of life. As a matter of fact, I've just gone through a long phase where I did that way, way too much, giving power to, to the wrong things, giving power to the wrong thoughts in me. And as you said, too, that it's usually, it's not true. These things are not true. Why it is that I do that, I don't know. Part of it is I spend too much time alone, you know, and, and the old cliche about nature abhors a vacuum. Nowhere is that more true than in my mind. Uh, I will generally fill it with, uh, <laughs> I don't do uh, sugar plum fairies, but I do little demons get in there. And the next thing you know, you're in a 12 round cage match with them. So I don't want anyone to hear this, to think that I, uh, you're, as I say, you're further along that road than I am. I am not, it's still something I struggle with. Uh, I struggle with the darkness. I find um, a depth of beauty in melancholy, though. I, I find there's beautiful, this thing about thinking we we must be happy. I'm, I'm one to believe that, uh, that happiness is somewhat overrated. I'm not sure we're here to be happy as much as we are here to experience, to have the full range of experience, whatever that might be. We'll take, this is a nice takeaway for me in this conversation is check myself when I'm in the habit of giving power to the wrong thoughts because I can do that. And it never, ever produces anything of value. Never. So true. And thank you for sharing that. That's, that's vulnerable and that's real. Well, I'm good with, I'm good anymore, Hannah, as long as it's genuine. We know when we're experiencing the experiencing the genuine you know that's that's why i love poetry you know is poetry is my is where i go either to read or if i'm working on a piece it's where i probably am going to increase my chances of experiencing the genuine because certainly in poetry it does not have an economic component uh, nobody writes poetry to make money it, it, so that doesn't exist Anytime money enters into the picture, you know, it's just, it's not necessarily a red flag at all. It's not a red flag at all, but it makes, it may say, well, okay, okay. There's other things to consider then. But without an economic, creatively, without, without an economic component, uh, there's my, my personally, my best chance to experience what I, what feels like the genuine to me. I am, I'm curious about one of your songs on the subject of being genuine and writing something that, you know, from that place of melancholy, something that a lot of people have related with, like unrequited love, for instance. I, I would love to hear the story of I Can't Make You Love Me. Yeah, how did that song come into existence? I wrote this that song with a dear friend, Alan Shamblin, and... We have different memories of how that came to be. I think we both read some, remember reading an article 
His was a little more serious version of the story, but it was a guy who was very down on his luck, had, had, um, now, as he got himself into some kind of trouble, it was a long time ago, and it was an article in the newspaper, one of the local papers, and he spoke to somebody about it, uh, where he must have gotten somebody's attention, and that he was down on his luck, and his he had lost everything, including his marriage. And he said in this article, I tried, but I learned that you just can't make someone love you if they don't. And I remember thinking... Hmm, what an interesting idea. And so at the time, I, I was writing a lot in those days with Alan and Ricky Skaggs, who was an artist that I really, a performing artist that I really enjoyed. Uh, I loved Skaggs' up-tempo songs. And so I said, this is an up-tempo bluegrass-type country song. So that we've got the phrase, I can't make you love me if you don't. You can't make your heart feel something that it won't. And it, for uh, months, we tried writing it as an up-tempo, a tempo bluegrass song, bluegrass country, uh, more, more, more leaning toward country. And it's interesting that we couldn't get any further than just those two lines. And so we would put it away and work on something else. One day I'd taken the kids to school, and, and uh, when my kids were little, uh, being with them was very disarming, uh, was a... My kids weren't morning kids, but I was a morning dad. I love being with my kids in the morning. And uh, I came back to the house, and that whole this piece of music just plopped out and um, with with a verse. And I didn't relate it to the, to the other song Al and I had been working on. I just thought, well, that's very curious. It went all the way to uh, the line, um, don't patronize me. And when I said that I immediately it brought me out of that place because I thought well you can't say that in a song nobody would sing that you you can't say that so it brought that and I think I probably just I thought wonder what this is wonder what this is about what's trying to be said here and then I remembered these uh, two lines that Alan and I had in this other song so I mashed them together and then I called him and I said hey buddy what are you doing you maybe come over here um, we need to check this out. And I played him what I had. And then we took uh, probably another three, but two, three days to finish the song, second verse, and deciding it didn't need a bridge. And uh, then I was forever put, uh, demoing it because I was just not emotional. Every time I'd try to sing the thing, why well, it just would lay there flat. So it took me a while. Uh, when I finally got a good demo, I had lived in another house and I was in the basement, used to work down there and got what I thought was a, a you know, a, a presentation that captured the emotion of the thing. Uh, I said to Alan, I, I can only think of two or three places to go with this. And the places I thought back then, Hannah, I had had uh, Bonnie, was Bonnie uh, Raitt, um, Bette Midler or Linda Ronstadt. I thought I, those are the only people I can hear sing this for some reason. And I had had a song called Too Soon to Tell on Bonnie's breakout album, uh, uh, Nick of Time. Um, she had made wonderful records before that, but the Nick of Time record was the one that really 
brought her to a full, full, full world attention. And I had had a song on there. So I, I knew Bonnie a little, not buddy buddies, but I knew her and I had an address. And so I sent it to her and, uh, couple weeks went by and she called and she wasn't jumping up and down saying, yes, 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 I'm going to record this. She says, I just find this really a powerful, interesting song. Can I have a hold on it for a while? And I said, as long, you know, as long as you want. So then she called back in a couple of weeks and said, yeah, yeah, I've made up my mind. I'm going to, I'm going to cut this. But it wasn't a done deal. You know, when she heard the song, she had to live with it. She's one of the great artists in the, in the field of popular music. And um, those people, you know, consider a lot of things before they commit to making a record. And Don was, was the producer. And so they got Bruce Hornsby on the piano and, and uh, made a wonderful, simple, very direct record in which nothing was in between her and the listener, but the song. And, uh, and, Alan and I, you know, we don't consider it our song really much anymore, Hannah. We just think it's, uh, we were paying attention when it happened by, and we were lucky that it came through us, but uh, I don't, I, 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 that sounds a little sort of mysterious, but that's kind of how I, kind of how I, I relate to it now. I love that. Oh my gosh, what a great story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, you know, for, uh, and, and I can't play it for you now, but there's a, uh, the last chord is, uh, is uh, you talked about the mistakes. Uh, be, be, be careful about the mistakes you, you, you correct. The last chord is, uh, if you're in the key of D, the last chord is a C, a C9 chord. Well, it was initially in, when I did the track in my little SE30 Mac computer, uh, you could just highlight the track, as you know, and and put it in any key. And I was trying to figure out what key I wanted to sing it in. So I was in D, and I said, yeah, that's, or a C. I was in C. So I'm singing along, and I'm thinking, well, that's a little muddy. It needs to go up. So I highlighted it, and I modulated it up to D. And when I'm listening back, I'm thought, yeah, I'm singing, I'm thinking, this is the right key, D's the right key. And when I get to the last chord, I imagine a tonic just a one chord and said it's a flat seven and I thought oh that's wrong that's wrong what happened what happened was I didn't highlight the track far enough I I changed the whole track the key of the whole track except the last chord and that was what gave me that last chord of that song and I thought oh that's that's a mistake and I went to correct it and some voice some little some little something in me said, you know, leave that. It was about six in the evening and said, just leave that till the morning and just see what you think. And the next morning I came down and heard that and thought, oh, no, no, we're not going to change that. It's going to. I've had I've had jazz, uh, Kurt Whalem and great jazz players pl play that song. And they say to me, you know, Reed, we love that song. I love that song. But that last chord. That really puts you in a different league. <laughs> and I and I never tell them, Hannah. I say, well, you know, sometimes it's divine inspiration, right? It was a pure computer mistake that I had the that I had the brains to just let set overnight. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Oh my gosh. Thank you for that little tidbit. 
Yeah, yeah. I rarely, I rarely um, uh, confess that, but I'm doing it because you and I are friends. <laughs> wow, what an honor! And I know you, you as a piano play, pianist, will appreciate that story. <laughs> that is so special. Right, I'm curious because um, I didn't realize that Prince has covered that song. Mm -hmm. um, bon Iver covered it recently, and Adele. <clears throat> I love like, I love both of their versions. The Bonnie Vera, I mean, what what an original! Just he's such an original that guy. He's to me. He's if you listen to his music, he seems to me. I don't know what his process is. I've never met him, but he seems the most unblocked creator. Um, mm. It just seems to just want to come out of him. Yeah, I love that verse. There's the their great the great old jazz singer Nancy Wilson did a spectacular version of it. Um, George Michael on a live record. Yes. Um, um, yeah, that song has gone out into the world. Thanks to Bonnie, by the way. Thanks mm -hmm. to Bonnie has gone out into the world and had it had its own life. It had its own life beyond Alan and I. Wow. I mean, I know you said that you feel like the song just came through you guys. You almost don't feel ownership of it but how does it make you feel when you hear a new artist cover it when you hear a new take on it it's it never ever Hannah never gets old it's on um Alan called me a couple of weeks ago and said Did you, were you aware that uh, it's on the new Josh Groban album what and I said no and I didn't even know yeah I didn't even know so there's all kinds of one of my all-time favorite singers is a guy named Paul Carrick. Uh, if you, um, those of you that don't know who Paul Carrick is, you may remember, again, this was before you were born, Hannah. There was a band called Ace that had a hit with a song called How Long? How long has this been going on? Well, Paul was the lead singer in that band, and then he was the lead singer in, in a, a band called Squeeze, and they had a... Uh, hit with a song called Tempted. Then he was the lead singer on the great Mike and the Mechanics record, The Living Years. That's Paul's lead vocal. And he's made his own solo records, and he did a fantastic, fresh, original arrangement, orchestral arrangement of I Can't Make You Love Me on one of his records, an album or two ago. And as I say, it's a Josh Groban. I think Alan told me that it had been covered somewhere in the neighborhood of 540 times or so there's all, there's just different versions of it who knows where but again i swear honey it's not a pride it's not a prideful thing it's again it's humbling and um the response is a deep 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 gratitude that he and i had anything to do with it you know the thing could have laid there i mean just and for bonnie it to make sense to bonnie you don't always get the the precise right artist for the song. In that case, we got the exact artist for that song to take it as she did to the world. And then at, since then, Alan and I have just been on along for the ride. That's so good. We're wrapping up here, but I just so appreciate you being on the podcast and sharing these stories, having these deep conversations. I also want to give a little shout out to Brent Mayer because he connected us and 
actually had him on the first episode of the podcast. How did you and Brent meet? I think probably just as a result. I was at an ATV. He used to come down there when he was producing Michael Johnson. He did beautiful records on Michael Johnson. He would come into the office and I could, they said, that's Brent Mayer. And he, this was before the Judds, before he discovered the Judds. Brent's done a lot, a lot of stuff, man. He's had a storied, storied career. Started out as an engineer and then became one of the most successful record producers Nashville ever saw. I couldn't get his attention, you know. I, I wasn't until I, I left uh, ATV and hooked up with Rob, uh, Rob Galbraith, who is a mentor to me even now, and taught me about writing what the intent of writing was, and he was running Ronnie Millsap's uh, publishing company. And then I started getting cuts by Ronnie and a few people, and then, you know, when you when you get um, cut and have a single, uh, uh, it's strange. They, they tend to come out of all kinds of hidden places, <laughs> you know, and saying, oh, yeah, I've, all been, I've been wanting to meet you. Oh, really? Really? Did you want to meet me before I had this hit, right? Oh, snap. <laughs> yeah. So I think it was probably he and Rob were, uh, Brent and Rob were really dear friends. And it could have been that he, Brent brought a song down to the Millsap offices. I met him there and then we just, we just went on from there. And then we wrote a couple of things, a couple of things we wrote. The Judds had success with, he cut a song of mine again, too soon to tell that Bonnie had recorded, uh, Brent cut that on Michael Johnson, the late, great Michael Johnson. Big loss, uh, losing Michael. So it was just the natural progression of life in the music business that Brent and I. And then we started writing together, and we wrote a few things together, and we've just maintained a friendship. Yeah, it's neat how Nashville is such a small community in the grand scheme of things. Like, it feels like a small world, and when you make a connection with someone at least in Brent's world, I see him in, maintain those relationships that way. And that seems to kind of be how Nashville works. You kind of grow up together in the industry. I hope, Hannah, I hope Nashville is still like that. I, I tend to not go hit music row too much anymore. Um, there's, a, there's a whole new uh, group of extraordinarily talented writers down there, and, it's, and they're having their day. You know, they're having their time. And there's there's another young group coming up behind them somewhere. I don't know where they're coming from, but I promise you they're coming. I hope it's as friendly and as inviting as it was when I was down there working, uh, trying to uh, make sense of the music business in Nashville. I hope it is. It feels slightly different to me, but I'm not up to my eyeballs in it anymore so I can only hope I have no reason to think that the young writers down there are any less passionate about what they're doing than we were or that we were any less passionate than the generation before us and in this just the way every generation has their language you know I I don't know I used to understand what a hit song was I don't know how to do that now for the simple reason that every generation has the language they want to. We're all saying the same thing. Human beings are in the business trying to figure this thing out, whether it's love, life, whatever. But the languages of music and words uh, differ from generation to generation. And so 
but I'm mightily impressed with a lot of young talent in this town. Oh, that's good. That's a good perspective on it. And I think also Nashville has grown in so many ways, even in terms of the kind of music that is coming out of the city. And I think you can find pretty much any genre here now, whereas even, you know, 10, 12 years ago, there was definitely primarily a country focus. And now, yeah, we've got jazz, we've got pop, we've got country, we've got some hip hop even. And as we have more people coming from New York and LA, I I think we'll have more film and and TV, uh, whether that's music or actually, you know, filming features here. I think the city's growing in a lot of ways and it still feels very collaborative and supportive at this point. So I think that's a beautiful thing. And I do hope that that spirit of collaboration continues because you could, when I first started coming here, you could go to any restaurant and your server was a songwriter and they wanted to collaborate. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, that's the old joke, you know, the, the old joke used to be, how do you, how do you, um, what is the old joke? How do you get a songwriter off of your porch? You pay him for the pizza. Oh. <laughs> right? Because they're all songwriters are doing something else now. And what's changed the world too is streaming and, and, and the fact that CDs are on the way out and it's all going to be in the ether. And how do we monetize that? It, it's tough. It's tougher now. A lot tougher now. But somewhere, if you're a young songwriter listening to this, somewhere there's a young kid, a man, a young uh, man or woman in a basement tinkering with a system, and they're going to figure out how to how to monetize this better than it's being monetized now. I believe that because I just don't, even at my cranky old advanced years, I'm just not cynical enough to think that money will literally at the end of the day drive everything uh you get you got you want to live indoors you want to right you want to you want to have a you know food to eat and in my case a little scotch at the end of the day um um yeah you you certainly want you want those things but i just refuse to give in hana to money being the sole nervous system heartbeat of everything. I, um, you know, the age of cynicism, and I hope we're not there. The age of cynicism, Oscar Wilde, I think, defines the cynic as the person who knows the cost of everything and the value of nothing. I hope, you know, my hope is that we, my word, we can, we can understand the value of that there are things that you simply, the most powerfully beautiful things in life are those that cannot be, that a price cannot be placed upon. And I just hope we keep that in mind, or if we've lost that, we reclaim that somehow. Um, I think that's a beautiful thing to speak over our city and over music and um, the next generation. So thank you for that. Mm, You bet. Thank you so much for listening. And please feel free to rate this podcast if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. You can share it, leave a comment, or continue the conversation on Instagram, Facebook, or Substack. Just look us up 
at Mint for Good Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Ray Kurzweil. He provided financial support and overall encouragement for the engineering and production of today's interview. If you would like to contribute towards future episodes, you can email me, mintforgoodpodcast at gmail.com.